the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Select few occasions I have a guest, and the guest in this case is Victor Davis Hanson, who does not need an introduction to most of you, but in any event, I will. Senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a professor emeritus of classics at California State University, Fresno. And I will say that there are very few people in public life, I have in my own life, but in public life, with whom I agree as much as I do Victor Davis Hanson or Kindred Spirits. There's a brand new book out, The Dying Citizen. Happy title. <laughs> but it's very true, The Dying Citizen. So listen to the subtitle. It's really good. How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. So those are the, uh, that's the trio of the apocalypse. Is that right, Victor? Thank you for having me, Dennis. Uh, yeah, I don't think they could put all six culprits in there. It would be too long, but I talked about open borders as well. No country can exist long, especially a consensual society that doesn't have a private, sacred space. And then I talked about evolutionary user elites who want to change the Constitution and evolve us into something other than what the founders envisioned. And then, of course, common topic is this huge federal government and people who exercise judicial, executive, and legislative power all within their own purview, the administrative state, deep state, permanent government, whatever you call it. But all six of those, three are sort of organic from the bottom, this idea that we're going to be, the middle class is being strangled and we don't have a border anymore. We don't have a, an idea of America as a distinct place for our traditions to, to be protected and to thrive. And this idea of tribalism, um, that we're all going to identify by our superficial appearance, and that's where our loyalties will lie, rather than common idea that we forfeit our primary identity to the idea of Americanism. But the others are kind of elite, you know, globalism and evolving the Constitution and our laws and administrate. That's coming from the top, not from a natural, organic, age-old process. So uh, I I agree on all of this, we'll, and we'll discuss each of them. By the way, it does seem ironic, even though it's not, but it does seem ironic that globalization, that the same people advocating for globalization advocate for tribalism. You would think they're mutually exclusive. You would think that. You would think that just as they said, all the nations of the world will give up their 
sovereignty for a global identity, so they would say in America all its particular tribes. Mm-hmm, exactly. Would, but they don't. Yeah. And I think <laughs> the answer is that the tribalist in each of these individual states feels that they're going to Xerox their tribal mentalities onto uh, this new world government. And I'm almost quoting exactly what Klaus Schwab, the Davos founder and author of COVID and the Great Reset, he wrote. I mean, one of the things he says that this new world government will have is diversity, inclusion, and uh, equity. equity, you know. This Klaus Schwab yeah. is quite a character. I'll tell you, he, he, he it's it's scary. He to, is. Uh, yeah, it's scary to observe him. So yeah, let, he is. He... let me ask you, because uh, I I am oh, I've always been preoccupied with the question of why, and, and so, where, or in this case, it'll be more like where where did this come from? If this is not organically American, all of these things are anti-American. Where where did they start? It was it nineteenth century, uh, late nineteenth century Germany. Where do you see the origins? Well, I, I think there's three culprits here. One is that in Western civilization, I mean, there's a Greek word cosmopolitan, a citizen of the cosmos, not of your city state, and that was that was Socrates, and that transmogrified into Alexander the Great and the Brotherhood of Man goes all the way with a long tradition to Fabian socialism, window Wilkie, you know, one world. So there's always this idea of utopianism that our system in the West is so successful, we're going to implant it everywhere. It's, it was in Dickens, England, where you know, the British Empire had that idea. So that's old uh, as far as globalism. And a lot of these ideas about, try, you know, that evolving to a human nature can be malleable and improved. So I get that. And then I understand that innately we always war with our natural inclinations, which are to identify with superficial appearances or to want to, you know, kowtow to big government or to the wealthy. A two-class system, a medieval system is much more common. So I understand that. But the question is, I think what you're asking is, in America that was founded to prevent these pathologies, Mm -hmm. what happened? Right. And I think the answer is that, in this, there was a couple of things. We, the immigration system broke down in the 60s. So this, the salad bowl, we placed the melting pot. And we, we, the host, did not ask anything, not legality, not English, not assimilation, integration from the, the immigrant. And it was almost a corrective of our own sense of guilt and pathologies for I don't know how many perceived sins, but we brought in... We have now 50 million people in the United States that weren't born here. 27% of the population of California is not born in the United States. And there are various statuses, illegal, legal, resident, citizen, but they haven't been assimilated. And so we're, we've got a large part of the country that's not on the same page. That, that's part of the legacy of the 60s. And the other idea was that the 60s said, we have a superior system of socialism and equity and the quality of result and our mores as far as family and sexual, sexual, all the things you've talked about, Dennis, so well, but we're on the outside and we're throwing rocks at the Pentagon or Exxon. But what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years, I think we on the conservative side took our eye off the ball and they 
captured those institutions. And they created, partly it was from academia that we wrote off as, you know, parlor talk or lounge talk, but the corporate boardroom and Wall Street and professional sports and Hollywood and television and media and social media and K-12, through higher education, they're all woke now. And they don't need 51% of the population because they exercise such influence in communications and fashion, popular culture. They put enormous pressure on the people to say to them, you're crazy if you think you're a traditional American or the Constitution still valid. Look at what LeBron says. Look what Jamie Dimon says. Look what uh, Mark Zuckerberg's doing. Look at everywhere around you, and you, you're the person odd person out but they're not we're still 51 percent of the population but for the first time this is a top-down revolution the woke the woke people are phyllis colors the marxist binder fourth home or it's kendy charging twenty thousand dollars an hour on zoom or it's uh oprah from her 90 million dollar estate in montecito talking to Meghan markle at her 15 million dollar so these are very powerful people who have convinced us that class doesn't matter it's only race 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 and it's it's really scary because it, that will destroy what had been the only successful multiracial constitutional republic in history exactly india right. can't do it and brazil can't do it very well and other than that the ottomans and the soviets and the late romans did it but they used a level of coercion to force mm-hmm. people to adopt a, a, a an ism or an ology that would be contradictory to our liberal values. Right. Well, let me remind everybody, I'm speaking to Victor Davis Hanson, his book just out now, The Dying Citizen. You don't have to agree with me, but isn't it, we wouldn't know exactly because we're male, but I feel that when a book comes out, it's sort of like giving birth. Yeah, in a way it is. You never know what's going to come out. I mean, it should look like it's parents, but, but, and you don't know how it will be received by other people. Right. Yes. And does it have a bright future? And I I worked on it for so long. Anyway, that's my analogy. The Dying Citizen. So listen, it's such an important subtitle. How Progressive Elites... Tribalism and globalization are destroying the idea of America. You you said a phrase uh, that I didn't want to interrupt you uh, last segment, but you said we substituted salad. Uh, well, I don't remember something salad for the salad bowl. Salad yeah, bowl. Yeah, that's it. it. For for melting pot. Yes. Uh, when I, I grew up, that was it was drummed into us. America's a melting pot. We come from every background, every ethnicity, every race, but we become American. And that stopped. I, do you think do you think 5% of America's young people even know what melting pot means? No. No. I don't think they know. I think they're told that the old... Uh, to the degree that everybody talks about their identity or cultural appropriation. They have all these terms, but they're not learning much in college. And they don't realize that the American system was, we never asked people not to eat Mexican food or not to wear African fashions or not to li- listen to Calypso. These were music. These were all the adornments that enriched 
American culture on the periphery, but we said to them, in exchange for keeping your cultural uh, landmarks that will enrich us, your host, you're going to have to become like our host. You're going to have to accept the Constitution and American civic traditions and learn our language and the customs of our country. And that's kind of a brutal bargain. But we didn't ask you to come. You, You asked to come here. So that was the onus was on the immigrant, and we, the host, were you know, sometimes quite brutally in assimilation and integration, intermarriage, we said, we will make you an American. But it's your choice to come legally, and we will do our part. But what happened was a breakdown on both sides, where we, the host, sent the message that we have historical sins in this country that you must be aware of, and it's not such a good place. And then we confused the immigrant and thought, well, if it's not such a good place, it must be... Must, then I must get in on this, and that's what the popular thing to do. So the foot that I, the moment I set a foot in this country, I become a victim. So it reaches a level of absurdity. We have people from some of the most oppressive and racial and impoverished places in the world, say Oaxaca State in Mexico, and they've been subject to terrible exploitation and racism from the government of Mexico City, and they come in across the border and immediately they're told that they've suffered a historic pattern of discrimination or, and they're eligible for reparatory affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. And they have claims against the majority to the, the point, Dennis, where immigrants who should be happy to be here and follow laws swarm a U.S. senator as she's relieving herself in a bathroom. That's right. Yep, that's right. Cinema, And they start making accusations against her, mm-hmm. and we're supposed to say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to ask your parents or you to come if you're not legally here, and what right do you, a resident, right, maybe right. perhaps a, an illegal resident? Uh, I, I wish that Senator Cinema had looked at her. I watched all the videos. The same, this same disgusting young woman harassed her on an airplane. And yes. and poor Senator Cinema, uh, uh, if I were Senator Cinema, I, I know me, I know exactly what I would have done. Said, you are the lowest form of human. You are an ingrate. There is nothing uglier than an ingrate. That's what you you should be singing the U.S. national anthem for what we did for you. That that's that's the issue. I I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. And you know we talk about illegal immigration in isolation. But as I tried to put it, point out in the book, it warps. It, it's like a, a ripple throughout society. We've got Dr. Fauci hectoring everybody who's had COVID who didn't get a vaccination, uh, even though they have immunity. But I'm talking about not the people who refuse to be vaccinated, but the people who have had it. And, have that. and yet we have 2 million people scheduled to come across the border in the fiscal year, and he's absolutely silent about it. That's right. He can't even, he can't even utter the word. Well, it's like the silence almost, of the unmasked demonstrators. And, and the, the medical profession said that's fine because it's... All 1,200 of them. I remember that well. That's right. It's, 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 so we're, what we're doing is we're creating not just exemptions for illegal aliens, but we're elevating them in some sense. We're not asking them to follow the law. We're not asking Right. Them so to I want to know the original sin here. Is the original sin Ted Kennedy? Is the original sin uh, the, the, the inabil- inability of the World War II generation to pass on American values? What's the original sin? I think it's two things. It was the affluence and the leisure created by the 6% 
just enormous affluence that was created, 6% a year GDP in the 50s and 60s, and we created the most uh, leisured and affluent society, and it created certain expectations about human nature that create a guy like Ted Kennedy and create his, his idea that we're so wealthy, we're so powerful, we're so liberal, we're so wonderful that we're going to extend this and feel so good about ourselves and start uh, deliberately having a policy where we don't apply the old rules of assimilation, integration, or... Wow, that, 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 that's really critical. Ted Kennedy is, in my opinion, one of the villains of American history. America is an idea. It is not an ethnicity. So if the idea is destroyed, America is destroyed. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's really... If you think about it, Dennis, even our liberal allies or the EU or Japan or South Korea, that if you and I, Victor and Dennis, want to say, I feel unkindred towards South Korea or Germany, I'd love to go over there and be a full German citizen or a Japanese, uh, South Korean, even a Japanese citizen. And I was African-American. I was not of the majority population. It would be very difficult for us to excel politically and say, Japan or South Korea, if we didn't look like the majority of the population. This, so this idea of a multiracial democracy or constitutional republic is rare even among humane places. It's, it's a very fragile, brilliant concept, but it, it, it needs constant nourishment and renewal. And if we don't have any notion of civic renewal or investment in it, it's going to die. It, it's a very rare idea that we don't have to look That's a lot. That's right. That's and, right. And we have total equality of opportunity. It just doesn't exist anywhere else. A third-generation Turk, that's the most common uh, immigrant before Merkel brought in a million, a (laughs) third-generation Turk in German, fluent in German, knows no Turkish, is still called Turkish. A first-generation Turkish-American who knows little English is called American. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. And we're talking about a parliamentary democracy, and much less something in communist China uh-huh. or Cuba or some ungodly place, ungodly place like that. So I think that's a lot of our problems is that this uneducated new cohort that went through K-12 to and, you know, went into the university, we just assumed that no one would be so insane either not to teach civic education or to teach that America was entirely culpable or it was flawed from the beginning. We were just so surreal that we, we were asleep at the wheel. And so now we're shocked at the BLM march or the Antifa or this transgendered movement or accosting a senator on a plane or in, in a bathroom stall or the Speaker of the House tearing up the State of the Union mm, address on mm. national. We, we, we just, we, we all say to ourselves, where did this come from? Mm-hmm. And I guess where we were worried about free market economics or Republican traditional issues, they appropriated the culture and the educational system and the corporate boardroom and Wall Street and social media. They were much more adept than we were. They were like, they have a lidless eye. They never blink. They're just constantly at, you know, this equality of result equity movement is just, is, it's obsessive. And we were sort of live and let live. And, and that's what happens in these revolutions. All of a sudden, the Jacobins appear out of nowhere or the Bolsheviks. And 
you think, where did they come from? How are they so crazy? And they're very hard to, to stop. So let me get to some possible solutions. So let me bounce off things that I recommend to my listeners and to my readers. Uh, one is, in most cases, take your kid out of school and homeschool them or find one of the handful of schools that actually educates. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think I agree with you, and I think we're starting to see places like Hillsdale College, not just if they, if you can't go to a charter school or a parochial traditional school and you're going to home school and you have the means that both parents don't have to work, there are programs or protocols that you can get from traditional colleges that will help you do that in a way that wasn't true 20 years ago. So I think there's a lot of colleges now who say the problem is at K-12. And I know that I kind of fought the battle in academia, but it was far more important K-12 because it's too late by the time the student comes. They're too acculturated. So you're I a fan of homeschooling? I am. Charter mm-hmm. schools, parochial schools, absolutely. Yeah. You're a military historian, so I'm very curious to get your take on the state of the American military. Well, I think we've got a very, uh, we have a crisis, Dennis, because I think our top echelon is entirely uh, out of sync with officers, let's say, to be arbitrary below the rank of colonel. In other words, the premium billet now is a Washington Post in the Pentagon or an attache, and that cursus enorma, that route to promotion, is invo- involves things other than military efficacy, not so many shells on the target of your brigade if you're an artillery commander or how many uh, miscarrier landings will hurt you if you're a Navy commander, but what was the percentage of this race or this gender, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what happened to them, they feel that both while in the Pentagon, that the conservatives are always there. They take their support for granted. There's always going to be for strong defense, military budgets, but whereas in the past the left was antagonistic to the military, now the left loves them because they feel the chain of command without the stern and drang of the legislative process and back and forth, or they can greenlight uh, transgenderism in the military, pregnant, pregnant women in aircraft, women in combat units, gay marry, all of that social agenda can be a model for the country by getting it into the and the, the military officers react accordingly. And then, of course, when they go out, I'm talking about our last two secretary of defenses, they go in from a military a defense contractor board and they go out. And we've got all of these four stars, the McChrystal group, the Northrop people, the Lockheed group, and they get, whereas before an Elizabeth Warren would critique them, they don't now because they sense that these, this military echelon is advancing at warp speed, if I could use that term, uh, a social agenda that they like, and they're going to, in exchange in this bargain, not hector them on their sort of grifting on going, you know, they know the labyrinth of Pentagon procurement, and then they sell that knowledge to a Northrop or a, a Lockheed or a Raytheon. And then the result of it is we get this weird General Milley, you know, lecturing us about white rage and white supremacy and quoting Kendi, 
while Afghanistan falls apart. So either it's a it's an excuse, uh, it, it's a way of covering their incompetence, or it is incompetence that they're spending so much time on this social welfare uh, agenda and, and wokeness that they can't do their job. What's but, happening in recruitment? The, I don't know if you know the answer, but I, I, I have two questions. One, well, are, I think are they meeting? I'm worried about it like you are. Yes. So here are my t- forgive me. They're here are my two worries. Uh, numbers. And what will the ratio be, male female? Well, those are good good units because let's just put off the table race and gender for a moment, and just ask ourselves what particular group is dying inordinately in Afghanistan and Iraq on the front lines the last twenty years, and that happens to be white males from the middle class. About seventy-five percent of the fatalities, on average, in those two wars. Uh, came from that group. And what is the group uh, that General Milley and Chief of Naval Operations Gilday and Secretary of Defense Austin are saying are suspect for insurrectionary activity and they need to be hounded out? It's that group. And so when, when Secretary Austin says, I want a proportionally represented military and I'm going to make sure that the military looks like a United States, you want to say to them, well, what does that entail? Do you mean the dead are going to look like the United States? Because they really don't right now. The dead are overwhelmingly white males from the middle and rural classes. And yet those are the very, uh, that's a source of recruitment that you have relied on to fight your wars in combat units. So you're alienating or disparaging or caricaturing a group uh, for cheap political Gain and is that group going to continue to volunteer to go over to God-forsaken places like Afghanistan? And by the way, we're not talking about quotas. We don't believe that you identify people by race, but these people do, Dennis. They do, and yet if they're going to do that, they're going to be hoisted by their own petard because it's suicidal. They're alienating the very rubric and their way of thinking. And they do classify people by gender and race. So, so what's in it for Mark Milley to be woke? To, uh, to What's in it for him? Yes. Well, how did a, by I'm not trying to disparage him, Dennis, but he's not an impressive character, and yet he's the iconic leader of the U.S. military, and yet he leaks to confidence. He leaks confidential conversations to muckraking journalists on the left. He violates the Uniform Code of Military Justice by comparing his commander in chief to Hitler. He calls up a Chinese. Uh, counterpart in the PLA, or he interrupts the chain of command, contrary to the law of the advisory purview of the Joint Chief. So he's done everything wrong. How did he get there? And what does he want when he leaves? I think what he knows is that the fact that he's positioned himself as somebody who, who made fun of Trump about the photo op, even though the Secretary General, the Inspector General of the Interior Department said there was nothing wrong, there was no tear gas. But he's positioned himself as an antagonist to Trump. He knows the corporate boardroom is left-wing. He knows the media will rally around him, as they have. Mm -hmm. And I think when he retires, he's going to follow the last few chief staff of the Army or chairman of naval operations or four-star Air Force generals and even Secretary of Defense. He's going to go right to Raytheon or Northrop or Lockheed or General Dynamics, and he's going to be very wealthy. But he knows if he were to 
criticize woke mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or to be praised right. for winning Afghanistan at the expense of not being woke, he wouldn't. Well, that, I think that's that can be that reductionist. Yeah, because I think no, that it makes sense. He has that. everything to gain and nothing to lose by being woke. So I, I, I sort of put you on the spot only because I'm so curious to know your answer. What What is your position on the integrity of the last presidential election? Well, I think the the real problem, I know that everybody got on election day, was there were all these contentions, but I think in March and April, when in these key states, the purview of the state legislatures that had very strict laws on things like you had to have both parts of your name, first and last. You had to have it postmarked by a particular date. You had to have an address. In some cases, you had to show on When that, those were systematically and deliberately overturned either by judicial fiat or by bureaucratic initiatives, many of it funded the efforts by certain foundations, many of them Silicon Valley. And then the sheer quantity, you had 102 million absentee or early voting so election day became kind of an artifact we only you know the minority only 40 less than 40 percent voted on election day whenever you have that radical change you're going to have discrepancies and the discrepancy Dennis was that we have a normal rejection rate on absentee and early voting of about four and a half to five percent either they don't have both names or what well that went down to point four at a magnitude of ten so you're, you're talking about maybe anywhere from 7 to 10 million ballots that would have been cast out under the normal scrutiny and authentication that we use for early balloting. But I guess under the cover of COVID, we didn't even realize that we completely redefined in a very short time how we vote. That's right. And it's going to be permanent in California. It's already been made it permanent. It will. There's no more election day. Well, anyway, listen, I wish you only success because we need you very much. The book is The Dying Citizen. It's a pleasure, Victor. Thank you for having me, Dennis. Yes, indeed. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Carol Platt-Lebow for townhall.com. It's sad to have seen a totalitarian response to COVID in places like China, but few of us are surprised. What's dismaying is that some of the same draconian measures seem to have leached into the liberal democracies of the Western world. Australia is perhaps the best, or rather the worst, example. In the second year of the pandemic, Australia still forbids its citizens from leaving the country and requires masks, even when people are outside and socially distanced. South Australia has an intrusive facial recognition and geolocation app. And in some parts of the country, you can't even leave home without an excuse from an official government list. The military enforces these rules, and dissenters are arrested and fined. Americans have watched these deprivations with growing horror. On YouTube, there are films that record police interactions that resemble officers from a Soviet-era state more than our easygoing Aussie cousins. 
Perhaps the totalitarian measures will keep Australia relatively COVID-free. But at what cost? I'm Carol Platt-Lebach. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.